in more ways than one. One, I, I'm not feeling 100%, so if I all of a sudden look like I'm about to fall over, please someone run and grab me. Um, I'm just feeling a little out of it, so uh, that's going to make this even more interesting since this is a little less scripted than I normally am. Um, normally around this time of year, it's been kind of the custom the last two years for me, Right before or after our annual congregational meeting, I, want, I, I like to preach a sermon which I kind of call the state of grace. Um, it's not that I think I'm the president or anything, but I think that um, sometimes it's helpful for us to just pause and for you to really understand, to understand and hear how I perceive things, where I see things, and how, where I perceive the Spirit's leading us. And at the same time, my hope out of that is to get some response to if you're in agreement with that or if you have different thoughts or, or uh, ideas. And so... Um, this message every year is always an opportunity, as I said, to look back on where we've been in the last year and also to share, at least as I perceive it, and that perception is still forming based on your feedback of where God's leading us in the future. It's also a chance for, for, for us to clarify why and how we are heading in the direction that the Lord's laid out for us. And so I, I don't I always want to identify it with a passage of Scripture, Scripture that speaks to what God's put on my heart. And our passage today is actually one I didn't get to preach on. A couple of years ago when we did a sermon series on Acts, one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts, um, I was not able to preach on because I wasn't here. And that's Acts chapter 8, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. And so I've kind of gone back to that as a way to um, talk this morning about us, where we've been, where we're going to be. Because for me, this providential encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian serves, I think, as a helpful lens for the vision that I believe the Lord has for us here at Grace. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read that story, and then um, we'll talk. So from Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. 
I want you to hold on to that story. We're going to come back to it. Because again, as much as I think that it's a helpful lens to see where I believe the Lord's leading us at Grace, I think it it's, would be out of order to talk about that, with, as I said earlier, without looking back on where we've been. This has been um, a year of change, a big year of change for us at Grace. Uh, I, 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 I hope you know me well enough. I'm, when I'm saying things, I'm really trying to be transparent to you. So what I'm about to say and share with you emotionally is not me trying to get your sympathy or your pity or for you to come up and go, oh, it's going to be okay. I'm just kind of I'm, I'm picturing this like we're talking in a living room. This has probably been my hardest year here at Grace, hardest year for me in ministry, um, because there's been so much change for all of us. And as your pastor, I don't know if you realize this or I hope you believe it, I carry that. That's part of the burden of pastoral ministry. And we've experienced a lot this year. And it's been challenging carrying that with you, but it's also been challenging because it's probably the biggest amount of change and this kind of change that I've ever experienced as a pastor in a church context. Um, we are, we've spent this last year on the other side of a vote that we took a little over a year ago to move from the ELCA to the NALC. And, you know, I'll be honest, I thought that the harder part of that was the work leading up to that vote. And I would say to you now that the harder part was the, the, the aftermath uh, of that. The aftershock, and I know many of you experienced it even more deeply than I did because I've only been here four years. The aftershock of that vote of... Uh, more people leaving than I expected, um, people leaving at different times, and many of those people who left being longtime members of Grace, um, part of where Grace it has, why Grace is where it is today, and many of them for you friends who you have years of time serving in the same community. And I know, I know how difficult um, that was. And experiencing in the midst of that, that reality of just a year of you know, we had so much energy focused on what we were going to do and how are we praying together and talking together. And I said, and I sensed it, but I, again, didn't realize, you don't know until you experience it, how much of the aftermath of, well, now what? Okay, well, we kind of all got rallied together to talk about and pray about this, but now that we're part of the NALC, so what? What does that look like? And I think we're still figuring that out. We have made some progress. Um, you know, our, our former pastor, senior pastor, John Brodowski, our bishop, for the NALC is going to be preaching here in September. I've been trying all year to have him come and preach, and he'll be here in September as a way to, again, connect as a part of our history here at Grace, but also to share with us about the NALC. Um, we have uh, several people within our community. Elizabeth Sanfilippo, who's a, been a pastoral intern for us, who has just gone through an interview for being uh, rostered eventually in the NALC, along with Pastor Sandy, one of our pastors here. So we've had that. We also have been in a continual conversation with Hope Lutheran down the street, and Hope Lutheran just, uh, gosh, two or three weeks ago voted to be a part of the NALC. So there's actually more churches, Reformation being the other, that are also part of this new and emerging denomination. But all of that, once we became a part of the NALC, it's been, well, who else is around that we can talk to? Um, and that's changed a lot this year. Um, so that's been a part of where we've been. We've also, beyond the NALC, ELCA vote, and I know this is a, still a, a sensitive spot for many of us, myself included, we have lost this year a lot of key founding members who went home to the Lord. And you're, you're much more aware of the impact and significance they had here at Grace than I have. But I, from your stories, from your sharing, um, those, are, those are tough hits. Um, and significantly, not to elevate, but again, it's, it's huge that in this year alone we, we said we let go of Pastor Mel and we let go of Pastor Paul. 
and I know what they meant to this congregation. I, I know what they meant to me in the brief time that I was able to work with them. And, and I think in many ways, um, there's a certain poignancy that they both went during the same year together in terms of their service, but it was also hard for us. All of this has resulted for different reasons, as you can tell, as you look around in our attendance dropping uh, in some of our services, most, most, most prominently this one. Um, we've seen some reduction in giving, and if you've been a part of our, our annual meeting, our congregational meeting, which I, I think went really, really well, and I appreciate those of you who were able to stay and come back, and those who came to the cottage meetings, but part of what we communicated was the need to reduce our budget yet again in the midst of this economy, and reduce it in a way that does not sit well with me, touching things such as missions, benevolence giving that we hadn't had to do for three years. Um, we also, one of the probably bigger things too, is consolidating our school. If you miss this in the cottage or the congregational meetings of basically moving from having two preschools to one and moving our entire school over to the McFadden site, which I think is the right thing to do, but there's a certain symbolism in terms of our school ministry started here that kind of leaves us, well, what's gonna happen? What are we going to do with that part of the, of the campus? What, what's the future for us in terms of our school? So these are all, boy, this is a bummer, <laughs> all the, the rough things we've been through. But there's also a lot of incredible things that have happened this last year that I briefly want to talk about. We brought back, not that it was that far away, Alpha. We revived the Alpha course. And I think we saw some significant fruit from that of people who that was a very important place for them to come to understand um, the gospel and to come into uh, the life of the church. We actually have expanded in the last part of doing the Alpha Course where from this point on, we'll be partnering and doing it in conjunction with Hope down the street. We did that, did, did one course together and in the future we'll be doing it together as two churches, which I'm excited about. Um, our children's ministries is growing. It's not growing at this service, um, but it is growing at our second service. And when I say it's growing, we have a lot more sticky kids. And what I mean by sticky kids is they're sticking around. Um, they're coming back. Um, and what's exciting to see is when kids are basically saying to their parents, come on, we have to go, come on, we have to get there. Um, and the same thing is happening in terms of our youth. Uh, again, not so much in this service, but if you ever frequent or ever just pop into our 1030 service, I'm pleased to say that we have a lot of our youth that are involved in the worship service, and that's taken some time to do. We have a lot more to go, but it's, it's encouraging to see some of our middle school and high school students helping us out. Um, we're seeing more integration between our church and our school. Um, I can tell you that when I came here, the number of overlap between school and church was not a lot, and that we're seeing more and more families integrate into our church, which is encouraging, and across the ages, from preschool all the way to middle school, um, and that's exciting. We have a fresh adult Sunday school program on Sundays, which I'm very excited about, and it's probably our best-kept secret here at Grace. We have diverse and unified teachers, diverse in terms of the spectrum of the church they represent, yet unified in teaching and living into that gift. So if you haven't taken part of that, when the fall comes around, I encourage you to be a part of that. We started a monthly prayer meeting which has been huge, huge, I, something I've wanted for some time, and I think it's been huge in, again, bringing us together, but also focusing us, focusing us outside of our own building. The School of Ministry was pioneer here. We celebrated that a couple of weeks ago. Connie has brought that, giving people, lay people like yourself, an opportunity to go deeper in their discipleship. And again, another place to partner with other churches so we're not just seen as isolated, but we see the wider 
Lutheran church that we're a part of. We've seen growth and change at our WOW service. Many of you come on Sunday and come to WOW. Some of you come to WOW more frequently than you come here. But WOW, that service has changed. It's growing and it's diverse in the people that are coming and are being a part of it. Um, and other churches are starting to connect to that service as well. That's extremely exciting. Um, I don't know if you came last week and we're at our 1030 service, maybe because of the congregational meeting. I wish you had, um, because we had last week, in my opinion, the best confirmation class that we've had since I've been here as a pastor. Not in terms of numbers. Um, I'm not about numbers, but in terms of the quality of the statements of faith that we heard and the quality of the students that confirm their faith, that I'm encouraged that they won't disappear um, after confirmation. Uh, we worked on new bylaws and a statement of intent. It took us three congregational meetings to do it. Um, but we have streamlined how we function and things are a lot more clear. We are, despite the fact that we've had to reduce our budget, despite the fact that we've consolidated our school in the midst of this economy, we've remained financially stable, meaning we're not coming to you and saying, you know what, we're in big, big trouble as the year ends. And that's due to your generosity and your consistent giving. So that's, that's also huge. Um, and what you may not see, if you're limi limiting yourself to one service, is there are new faces. There are new members, there are new opportunities, new possibilities that are happening at Grace, new stories to tell. What I'm saying to you is, is that I see as your pastor that the Spirit's on the move and present at Grace and the next chapter of our story is going to be written. The question for us though, and looking back as we look ahead is, how far are we willing to go? How far are we willing to go? I've shared this in a number of different teachings and sermons, but it bears repeating and coming at it again because it speaks to where I see God leading us. What we all need to embrace here at Grace is that the church is changing. We need to hear that and we need to embrace it. The church is changing. And probably the most significant way I can point to how the church is changing is to acknowledge, and I hope that you can acknowledge it with me, that going to the church, being a part of the church, is no longer a cultural norm. It's, it's no longer the thing to do. Many of you who are here grew up where going to church, being a part of the church, was the thing to do. It was ex just societally expected on Sunday when you moved into a community. We can get all upset about it, but the reality is that's no longer a cultural expectation. That is no longer a cultural centerpiece. Um, many of the things that church Part of why church was seen that way, um, to impart morals, to build a sense of community as being part of your civic duty. You know, you'd go to work and it would be expected, well, where do you go to church? Those things are changing. That's not asked anymore. Morals and values, the definition and sense of community that used to be a part of going to church or being a part of the church are now being imparted by schools, the school community. The school used to be in partnership with the church. It's less and less so. It's being imparted by sports. Many, many people find that sense of moral and values for their kids and community by the sports that their kids are playing and by other group activities. There's not even partnership with the church anymore in terms of those things. It's in fact, and the evidence of that is, you grew up at a time when um, some of these other institutions would never have thought of having practice, let alone a game, on a Sunday. Not anymore. Not anymore. If anything, it's like, well, you know, if you need to go to church, go to church, but then you're not going to play. Well, then, you know, you can come later. The church is changing because it's no longer a cultural norm. And civic duty, your civic duty, you know, there used to be a time when, like I said, as a citizen, people just kind of looked around and would ask you, what church do you go to? You know, where, what church are you a part of? I mean, it was just kind of what we do. But our civic duty isn't going to church on Sunday anymore. 
I don't know if people would even put it this way, but our civic duty now is to spend time as a family. We're busy, we're overcommitted. We live in a world where working, a, lot of, a, a, lot of, a lot of people who are working work on the weekend. And maybe you have in your own families, the only day they have together as a family is Sunday. The only day when they're all together when they're not working. And so the civic value, your civic duty is to spend Sunday catching up with your family, spending time as a family, catching up on life. But do you notice the irony that church isn't seen as a positive force in this effort? Not Church is seen as a distraction. Church is seen as a rival to the idea of spending time as a family. I'm still chewing on why that is, but we need to hear that. Now, I know many of us don't like to hear that the church is changing, but two examples just of the trend that it's not just my speculation is, first, we have more than ever before, I didn't grow up this way, kids who are coming to church without their parents. I've said this to some of you privately. I don't know if you recognize this, not only with our children's ministries, but with our youth, where parents are not coming. They're just dropping their kids off. You used to come and you would look and say, well, we're partnering together, but you're now looking at kids whose parents are not even here. In fact, our best way to reach those parents is through their children. <laughs> um, we also have more and more of a trend, and this has been going for some time, where if parents do come with their kids, they come with their kids till high school. And after they graduate from high school, we don't see them anymore. They disappear because they got their kids the, the moral inoculation that they wanted, the morality inoculation, the values, and they're gone. And when we step back and we ask, well, why are kids not in the church? Because when the kids turn around and see that their parents are no longer a part of the church, they realize that it was bogus that it was just something to do, and they can find something better to do. But probably the most significant evidence that the church is changing, and I've definitely referenced this the last couple of times I've preached, is that we have more and more people who are without a church, who have no church affiliation at all, yet still consider themselves to be Christians. It's, and it's actually a debate. Well, I don't need to, I, I can't tell you with the middle schoolers I worked with for, for confirmation, how many statements of faith, it's kind of scary, where in asking them about the church, the students didn't, not say anything. They boldly came out and said, I believe I can be a Christian without being a part of the church. I don't need to be a part of the church to be a Christian. They didn't get that idea on their own. They're getting it from, again, a world that says, I can follow Jesus on my own. I don't need to be a part of the church. The church is changing. The implications of all this, what this means for us, is that we need to change as the church. We don't need to change our function, who we are, but we need to change our form. What this means most specifically is many of us grew up, myself included, at a time when the church was the cultural norm. The church was the place to be. And so the church was very, uh, what we used to call, program-driven. Those days are over where we create programs where people are going to come. Because, and I, I know no one likes to hear this, but frankly, other organizations out there do, their, do the programs that we're trying to do better than we do. They do it better. They also have the benefit of saying something that we at the church can't say. You know, if you want to play baseball, here's how much money you're going to play to pay baseball. And here's how many hours you're going to commit to help out to be a part of baseball. And you're going to also, you're going to do this. You're going to work the snack stand and do this. Oh, you don't want to do those things? Well, then guess what? You don't get to play baseball. We don't have the ability to say, oh, you want to know Jesus? Well, guess what? You're going to have to pay this much money to know Jesus. And you're going to have to work this many hours. We did that one time, and it didn't work out really well in our history as a church. We don't have that luxury. And, and so what, what's the, the challenge is, is that if, it's, if what is being offered by the church is not valued by those on the outside, there's, we have no ability to draw people in. 
Now, something I've heard a couple of times, and this is myth number one. There's two myths I'm going to talk about very quickly. Um, the myth that I've often heard when, we, when I've had this conversation about the church is changing, and even my four years of grace, is, look, if we just build it, they will come. Pastor, if we just come up with, remember, we used to have these ministry teams, and we used to have this, and we used to have that. We, if we get these things back and put these things back, then we'll go back to the good old days, and people will flood, because they used to love adult Sunday school in between the services. They used to love when we had this going on. You're not getting it. The church is changing. It's not Field of Dreams anymore. It's not if you build it, they will come. The reality is, part of why the church is changing is because we are trying to minister, even within the church, to busy, overcommitted people. If I were to poll you right now, how many of you would consider yourselves busy and overcommitted to where you have to learn to say no? It's almost like your default. I'll give you a couple examples in the life of grace. <laughs> um, we have ministry teams but we don't have a lot of people serving on those ministry teams because they're busy. And yet we keep trying to say, well, we need to build these ministry teams. Okay, you can't we're trying to build ministry teams by guilt-tripping and arm-twisting people. For nominations for elder, and I want to clarify something that was said at the congregational meeting, we didn't have everybody say no. We had a couple of yeses, but it was sobering that we had way more no's than we had yeses. It was a smaller pool to pull nominations from. That's for the ultimate level of leadership within the church. That's an example of, again, people are busy, and the number one, I just don't have time. I can't commit to that. We did Alpha, and Alpha went great, bringing it back. We shortened Alpha this time around to try to accommodate where people are. We made it much less in terms of weeks. Do you know in the Alpha class that the minority actually went through all of the course? That for most people, they missed two or three weeks? Again, that reflects something. They couldn't even do six weeks. They couldn't do eight weeks. I'll give you the one that's, if, if anybody has the answer to this, please talk to me after the service because you will solve one of the greatest mysteries for me of church, okay? I can't predict church attendance. Uh, it used to be on a Sunday morning, a pastor could get to know a congregation and could say, okay, well, I know most of my people, they're going on vacation, so this, they're going to be gone here. Or on this Sunday, they're going to be here, you know, this is going on. I don't know when you guys are coming or going. I don't. I show up some Sundays and I go, Wow. I show up on Sundays and I go, whoa. <laughs> and as I talk to people individually, there used to be, if you were here, you're here. But church attendance is all over the place. There's no predictability to it. And that's, again, reflective of how busy and overcommitted people, people are. Where, and again, it also shows you where church on the priority scale isn't up there anymore. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to let this one go. My, I, you know I come from a Catholic family, and I was talking to my, my, my parents who are still practicing Catholics, and this is even happening in the Catholic Church. And in the Catholic Church, they make you go to confession if you miss. We don't even have that. So, myth number one, this idea that if we build it, people will come. We, we really have to understand that that's not true. That's not true. And, and trying to build it with, when people aren't coming is burning people out. That's why people are leaving and running to the hills, because they're feeling guilty. They're feeling manipulated. And I don't want to do that to you as your pastor, and I don't want to be responsible for creating that kind of environment. I've, told, I've said this before. It's the idea that when we draw people in, we ask them to change, trade their busyness out there for our busyness in here. The church has to change. Myth number two that gets, has been said, well, okay, you know what? Things would be better in the church and at Grace, if we just communicated better, if we communicated better, we would go, nobody knows what's going on around here. Nobody understands. No one, you guys never tell us anything. I got to tell you, this really ticks me off. 
It does, because one of the things I was very sensitive to when I came was hearing that and really trying, and I'm not saying we've arrived yet to communicate better within this community, but I've realized something in four years, and I, I need you to realize it too. That's a myth. If we communicated better, we would grow, because I think our communication is good, and I think it can improve. We have, we have the bulletin, we have our webpage, we have Hearts Up, we have announcements, we have slides, we have Facebook, we have sermon CDs, we're on iTunes, we got inserts in the bulletin. Our communication is good and it could get better. I'm not saying we can't improve, but here's the thing. As as much, as more, as the more we can improve our communication, what we can't fight is the fact that people are filtering and ignoring communication better. Let me give you three examples. When we put out nominations for elders to be elected at the congregation meeting, and this is from Ralph Clark, our nominating chair, several people came to him, I didn't know we were looking for nominees. You know, you ought to put a slide up that says that. <laughs> there was a slide. And it was in the bulletin. And it was in Hearts Up. And Pastor Chris mentioned it on Sunday. Another one. We did a communion orientation class for our, young, for our younger kids. Pushed it for several weeks. Had two parents the day we acknowledged those kids for communion who were furious and sensed, I had no idea this was going on. Whoops. <laughs> Told you it was going to be different. <laughs> and it had been announced. But what came out is that, that, and I'm not naming names, they hadn't been here in six to eight weeks. But they popped in and how come I didn't know? I'll give you one better. And forgive me on this one. Pastor Paul's service that Pastor Paul had passed away, and four weeks later, we had his service. I, we actually had a member of this congregation call up furious. They had no idea that we had Pastor Paul's service. They missed it. How come we, we didn't announce it good enough? We didn't, let, we didn't communicate it. Really? Really? The trend is, and this is what we need to understand, not just within the church, and it's not just a church problem. We live in a world where people are in, overloaded by information. How many of you read all the emails you get? How many of you actually open up all the mail that you get? How many of you pay attention to the signs that seem like there are more signs? Any place they can fit a sign on the road, they put it. It's not that we need to communicate better. <laughs> it's the reality that we have to understand that the way we're communicating has saturated people. We've learned how to filter to just, I'm, only gonna, I'm not even going to pay any attention to this. I get, as, a, as your pastor, I get over 100 emails a day. A day. A day. Now, I've got, you know, all the junk, and then, but other stuff, and I have to get through 100 emails. And we live in a world, and this is, you know this, when, when people email you, why didn't you answer me today? If you get a text, why didn't you text me today? You're living that, I'm living that too. And yet the reality is, is oftentimes when we do respond, <laughs> people, how many of you pick up your phone all the time when people call? We can fast forward through commercials. We know how to filter communication. So that idea that if we communicate better, that would fix everything. I agree that we need to communicate better, but that's not the issue. So what is the issue? Acts chapter eight, we just heard it a couple minutes ago. This is a really inspiring and instructive picture for what the church needs to look like in the 21st century. If, you, if, you don't, if you've never thought about it this way, here in the book of Acts in, in chapter eight is the story of how God grows the church geometrically through just two men. Geometrically through just two men. We have in this story Philip the deacon, Let's just start there. He's a deacon, okay? He's not supposed to be jaunting around the countryside preaching and teaching. 
Because he, he, he was set apart, the, you know, the apostles set apart deacons to take care of the orphans and the widows. And yet, surprise, surprise, despite the programs and categories that we create, the Spirit says, hey, Philip, you go. You go. And he's led by the Spirit into the desert along a wilderness road. Luke really draws this out for us in Acts that it's along a wilderness road because he's, pri- he's trying to let us know that where Philip is going is probably not where he intended to go. In fact, at the end, he finally gets to Caesarea. He wasn't looking to go out to a, some road in the wilderness. He went out of his way. And you also get the sense in the story that it's clearly, as, he, as he's obedient to go, it's not his intention to stop either. Did you notice that? He goes out on the wilderness road, and it's kind of like you can imagine him walking along. Oh, look, an Ethiopian eunuch who broke down. Okay. And the Spirit has to say, hey, go over to the chariot. The Spirit has to tell him to go over to the chariot and see who's there. And he's sent to a eunuch, as we hear. A relationship that is probably outside of his circle of friendship and influence. Okay? And just a little bit on eunuchs, just to, sorry, this might, for the guys, happy Father's Day, it might make you uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> eunuchs. They were handmaids of the queen, and in order to be handmaids of the queen, to be trusted with that responsibility and to prevent the idea that they might be tempted to mess with the royal line and other things, they got that honor to be entrusted with so much by being castrated. And by being castrated, he was something, something other than an ordinary man. Ironically, this, this having happened, in the eyes of other men, he was also probably seen as something less than a man. And yet, notice the paradox here for this eunuch. What was biologically central to his manhood had been taken away surgically so that he could excel and be successful. We don't have a lot of eunuchs but we have a lot of people who feel like they have to make the same choice, who have to sacrifice part of who they are in order to be successful. And this eunuch is a very successful person. He's powerful, he's wealthy, the way Luke describes him. He's traveling in style, he's traveling in his very own chariot. Back then, you didn't travel in your own chariot unless you were living in style. It's a sign of prestige. And he's a foreigner, he's an Ethiopian eunuch. There's this exotic international flavor to this, uh, to this person. Philip is sent to this Ethiopian eunuch because he's confused. This is a person who has sacrificed a part of himself in order to be successful, but he finds himself, despite his wealth, despite his influence, despite traveling in style, he finds himself confused. Why is he confused? He's confused because he's picked up a scroll, which, by the way, is another sign of how much money he has, because people didn't walk around with Bibles back then. He has a scroll from Isaiah. He must have had means in order to get it. And he's reading Isaiah... And he's perplexed. Now, to help you to understand why he would be perplexed, the first thing we need to understand is that he's clearly a a recent convert to Judaism. He's come to believe in Yahweh, in the Jewish God. He's reading Isaiah, and he's perplexed because the, the passage he's reading in Isaiah is speaking about someone who suffered. Ironically, someone who was sheared. Don't miss the irony that he's a eunuch here. Someone who was sheared and... For this eunuch who is believing in this God, here's the big obstacle that he has in front of him despite his success. You prob- most of us probably wouldn't even think of this. But he's converted to this God, but up till now, he's sort of, a, <laughs> he's sort of a, a shadow convert because his understanding of this God, probably from his Jewish friends, is that there's no place for him in God's kingdom as a eunuch. Want to go look at it later? Look at Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, which clearly points out that if you are a eunuch, you are not part of the assembly of God. 
there's no place for you. So here is someone who wants to believe in this God, who's successful, sees he's missing something in his life, but believes there's no place for him. And yet he's reading this passage in Isaiah that seems to speak of a new possibility, something different. And he's confused. And so Philip is sent, even though he doesn't realize it, to lead this successful person to, to Christ. And Philip, as he comes along, <laughs> finds this Ethiopian eunuch doing the first century version of texting while driving. He's reading his scroll in his chariot, but he doesn't understand what he's reading. And so Philip listens to his questions and his doubts, perhaps his most powerful question. Who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Read between the lines here. Is he talking about someone like me? Is he talking about someone like me? I know what it's like to be sheared. I know what it's like not to experience justice. I know what it's like to have it all but to have nothing. And we're told that Philip shares the gospel with him. No doubt he shares his own story and he introduces him in, to Christ. And it's not here, but if they're reading the scroll of Isaiah, can, you, can we make this leap? Because three chapters later, I'm going to read it to you. We were told that he's reading from Isaiah, but three chapters later from what he's reading, this is what the Ethiopian would read. And I believe on that journey with Philip, they read this together. In chapter 56, verses 3 through 6, this is what Philip and the Ethiopian would have read. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The gospel got real personal for this eunuch. He believed he was an outsider. He believed he was cut off. And he's going to find out in hearing about Jesus Christ going through Isaiah that because of Christ, of the one who will come, he's a part of God's kingdom. This eunuch, as we hear, gets baptized and then goes home. And if you're familiar at all with history of the church in Ethiopia, he becomes a catalyst for converting a nation. Today we look to Ethiopia and there are 13 million Christians, 18,000 churches, 250,000 pastors. The Holy Spirit did that through two men. Two men. How is this a lens for the church in the 21st century? It's a lens because if you look at this story, this story is not program-driven, it's relationship-driven. It's not about if you build it, they will come. Philip doesn't come up and go, you know, here's my card. If you come to the church in Jerusalem, we've got some really great programs for you that we can help you to understand what you're reading. The church in the 21st century, the church is changing, is not about building it so they will come. It's about what happens to Philip. It's going to where the people are. It's about sharing life on the side of the road. 